Welcome to episode 29 of Talking Toro, or if this was a Juve podcast, episode 299. There you go, here's a joke for the accountants. Robert, we, uh, we've we won in Florence, not something in the league that happened in, has happened in my lifetime, so uh, definitely hasn't happened in yours. And yeah, a little bit, a um, little bit of extra precision on last week. Actually, last time we went to Florence and won, we were champions of Italy. It wasn't in the Scudetto season. Um, so, is that a good omen for for Coppa Italia's success this year? I don't know, but yeah, one nil against Fiorentina. Rob, you take it away. I thought it was. Uh, I personally thought we were going to play well on on Saturday night, and the reason, on reflection, is. I think we've only played badly away from home once all season, which was a game I didn't watch in Naples, where a lot of people have played badly. And I think we've only played well at home, really well at home once all season, which was the win over Milan. So on that logic, Torino away from home are a pretty pretty safe bet um to to at least put in a performance. So anyway, you take it away. It was a it was a it was a good evening Saturday. Yeah, no, I think that I think that sort of sums up a little bit, a bit of a discrepancy between our home and uh, away form, which is what you wouldn't expect. Obviously, the majority of teams are, are better at home. I wouldn't say Torino are particularly a counter-attacking side. I think maybe they just get a little bit more space when teams uh, are at home and sort of have to open up a little bit. Whereas with our struggles in front of goal, they know, especially if they come to the the Grande Torino, if they sort of hold a, a pretty good defensive shape, we are going to struggle to break them down. Uh, I thought first half against Fiorentina was probably, again, one of our better performances this season. Like I say, there haven't been many bad ones that are away from home. Um, have we put together two complete, like two halves of a good performance would probably be my only, uh, like not even a complaint, but my only observation where we've obviously we played well in the first half against Roma. I think we played well, really well in the first half against Lernitana, but whether we've put in a complete first half and second performance, I still thought second half, we probably should have put the game to bed um, And I, because I, I wasn't massively impressed with Fiorentina. I think given their investment, even when I saw their starting 11, I just, I just had a feeling that their team would be better than that and they didn't really contribute much in the first half. A, a quick word for Dembasek, I thought given, I mean, a lot of people before the game were sort of uh, a little bit surprised to see that he was starting. A lot of people were describing him as a false nine. Uh, I think he played as a genuine striker. Like, he was trying to so he wasn't trying to con- link or connect to the play. He was he was sort of being the, trying to run beyond the defenders and, and obviously very unlucky by having the disallowed goal and hitting the bar as well. I thought he showed really what having a sort of a pacey striker who can sort of offer that option with the with the pacing behind could could give us uh, and whether that's going to be something we'll replicate in the Empoli game. Uh, I thought Adopo finally given a, a reward and a start in midfield. I thought he played really well. Probably unlucky to get to get subbed after only about an hour. Um and yeah, a couple more observations, but I'll uh, I'll hand back to you and, and see if there's anything you uh, you want to say on those two points. Yeah, I think the first point on Fiorentina is that, like I said last week, they're not, really not the sum of their parts. Um, I didn't think their starting lineup, uh, when they looked at it, felt that impressive. Um, and I, it just felt like Torino were playing 
uh, the Torino of last week against Spezia. Their performance was very similar to Torino last week. Slow, um, lack of cohesion, a lot of misplaced passes, no cutting edge. Um, last 15 minutes, they whipped a few more balls in the box. And then you look at who they, you know, Jovic, Gonzalez, Terzic, Barak all coming on. have probably cost them, what, you know, 50 million Euro, euros plus. Um, it was quite, it was, you know, when I've seen them play a few times under Italiano and when they get it right, they're, they're a very kind of slick uh, passing side, a bit like we can be as well and, and under Juric. Um, Amrabat, I thought was pretty woeful it was his mistake actually which led to led to the goal it was a a cross field pass that got intercepted um yeah just it i mean i don't want to jinx it with us going there in the cup it just feels like you got the impression not all of the players were really felt like they were too invested in what they were doing there put it that way dave farrow the commentator when we played roma away he was obsessed with um with belotti i mean belotti was always going to be a big subplot of it of that game, but more, Bellotti, uh, more obsessed with Bellotti than I am. Yeah, Bellotti didn't start that game. Jovic didn't start this game. I think the first five minutes, all we heard about was Jovic, and I thought, oh, you know, this means jo- Jovic is going to come on and and do something. But no, I thought um, I thought we effectively beat the Torino of last weekend. Um, yeah, it was good to see a few changes in the starting lineup. A bit, a bit of risk, uh, risk just in terms of putting trust into a few different players. Sec. Sek has done well occasionally. He played very well in the first half against Atalanta earlier in the season and then kind of really lost his way as we did in that game. Um, unlucky with the goal chalked off, unlucky with the effort which came off the bar. He stretched a defence. He worked very hard. Um, I fear, part of you always fears when a player plays like this that, oh, we don't need to sign a striker now we've got Denver Sek. Whereas we know the reality is that that's sort of a, a pro- yeah, there was an element of surprise to it, which may have caught Fiorentina out. There was the element of having a bit more space, like you said. I really don't see that working in a home game against an Empoli or an Udinese who are going to sit sit back. But it's certainly it's certainly encouraging, um, especially with Pellegrini being out, that we can we're not having to rely on getting every last drop out of an out of form Sanabria. Um, and then on Adopo, yeah, he did very well for about an hour. I think Juric, the commentator said anyway on Saturday that Juric had compared him to Desailly in a press conference, which, yeah, it's gone from a player he's barely trusted all season to to being the next Desailly. But yeah, I felt I felt he tired, um, in that second half, which was probably why he came off. But yeah, he gave a, it kind of he gave a very he's not just a destroyer; he's quite a progressive player as well and gets forward and. Um, and helps out the attack. And then, yeah, the other thing to say, it was an excellent goal from Moranchuk. I'm not sure Moranchuk did much else. I'm not sure he he does much else, apart from these kind of um, very decisive decisive moments. It was a little bit like that against against Verona as well. But yeah, a kind of very good goal to win the game. I just closed. Yeah, I mean, the last, I got to wait. I didn't watch it live. I recorded it and watched it quite late on Saturday. I got to 85 minutes and I was like, I have this tendency to, if Torino were leading and it gets to 85 minutes, I do understandably get very nervous. And I, as I did against Rome, I fast forwarded the uh, very, I put it on the very slow fast forward the last, um, yeah, the last, whatever it was was the last 10 minutes essentially and that was pretty excruciating because the tv the tv can jump as well and suddenly you're um 
but once I knew, once I got to the end, we'd won. I'd, I think I watched the last 10 minutes back like two or three times just really to enjoy watching that, knowing we were going to win. Because there were some, yeah, one or two dicey moments in there. Um, of that Zima challenge was obviously very important, but I think it got missed that a foul, uh, the ref had blown up for a foul in that um, as well. But but yeah, it was, it was a professional job. It was the first half, very good. Second half, we didn't really create much, was which a little bit of a concern. Um, but we, yeah, we we played well enough to win the game. Yeah, I think just to just on a couple of your points there, I think we Moranchik is just a strange player. I think Juric came out in the press conference and just basically just said that that he loves him, but it almost like almost like a lovable road character because he he. He's almost the opposite, I find, to Vlasic, whereas Vlasic will often fight, you'll often see in the game, even if he's not having a great game and he's not getting opportunities in front of goal, he'll still always put in a shift and he'll still always be available for his teammates or run back and trap back. Moranchik, you don't actually realise he's on the pitch until he pops up and then scores. His second sort of, probably third goal, actually, he scored, scored a decent goal against Milan where he'll just pop up out of nowhere just with his sort of, almost like, ballet dancer-esque uh, movement and his, I think his uh, technique with his left foot, I think I think probably the goal against uh, Hellas probably a better goal, but just even the way he shapes up for that goal, it was almost inch perfect. It was it was like a, a goal you'd score on a video game and that to have that somebody in the squad with that sort of ability you can almost because you, you, I'm aware of almost made him sound really lazy and he's not quite like a, a redundant character he's almost maybe a just a, he's a bit of an enigma you can't really you don't really expect what you're gonna get from him. you just he'll just pop up and just do something totally unexpected and the fact that you're rich sort of spoke so highly of him makes makes you think it's probably probably potentially we'll be trying to make that move permanent um zima challenge i'm glad you brought that up as well because i thought that was very good I didn't realize was there so was there a foul well, before that, that, the challenge yeah. There may have oh, been you got a chance in the face. and Van, yeah, and so the ref, whether if they'd scored, I see. I felt, I thought, I thought, I thought he was um, Milligan Savage made a, a bit of a meal about that. And I'm having never been kicked in the face by a professional footballer, but I thought he made it look as if it was a lot worse. Than it was. I mean, the fact that he was able to stand up immediately and scream at the referee suggested maybe he weren't that injured, uh, Van. Yeah, but just a quick got... word on a quick sorry. Yeah, as I was gonna say, it got it definitely got pulled up for a free kick. I can't ah. remember if it was the one on Vanya or whether there had been a, an earlier infringement as well. But yeah, and and then just on Vanya as well, I thought he made a couple of decisive saves once again, and I think we might finally have to admit that he is turning into a, a fairly competent goalkeeper. Um, the fact that he is so good with his feet is always going to be his high point. I think he, with the goalkeeper who does have moments where he will make mistakes. I think you're probably going to have to just always deal with that. But he made a couple of really good saves, I felt, and that's probably probably third or fourth time fourth time that we've had to say that this season. Uh, so, yeah, credit where it's due, I think. And I think that's it for a team who need investment, but to sort of have to prioritise on which positions. I think Milinkovic Savic being in this quite good form quite a good thing because now we're not screaming out for a new goalkeeper in January. We are sort of looking at improving the positions that we need to. Um, but yeah, we might get onto that a little bit later. Um, and then just one last word 
for my friend Alessandro Bongiorno, who I've, I haven't actually been too kind to um, this season, maybe on the podcast. I do feel really bad about it because I really, I really like him. I, I, I love the fact that he's a Torino fan. I just, I'm never that confident with him in the team. I just always think that he's got a mistake in him. I always think that he's going to uh, potentially uh, make a mistake that's going to lead to a goal. But, and I felt with this, uh, there was, I think he made an error just in the maybe last five or 10 minutes um, in the game on, on Saturday, which almost led to an opportunity for Fiorentina. But I did, I did something which I don't usually make a habit of, Peter. I've looked into some stats. Go on. Bongiorno in the game against Fiorentina had six interceptions won three tackles, which I think was three 100%, and made five clearances. So, judge your own stats, and I'll get on to later in the podcast about how you can't read everything into into statistics, unfortunately, in, in terms of football. Um, that just shows that sometimes what you see on the pitch with your eyes isn't always reflected in actually what's happening in the game. And sometimes, if you look at those stats in isolation, you think, oh, wow. What a player he is, and I, and I still do, I still do think that he is potentially. I think he could be a sort of a Torino captain for the sort of next seven, eight years. Uh, I do have that potential and that faith in him. Um, but yeah, I just, I just thought I'd give him a little bit of praise because even though I wasn't too sure watching the game, sort of maybe I'd had a couple of too many points at that point. But um, yeah, the the stats reflect that he had a, a very good performance. Yeah, he did. I thought the defence was solid and the other thing was Gigi. I mean, why is it all a kind of yeah mishap seemed to happen to him? He's kind of broken his that, nose that again. That's is. The, the that, third might, time. that may be yeah. one of the worst injuries I've seen now on a football field because I like you could tell straight away that he like broke his nose quite severely. But yeah, it's the third time in eighteen months he's done that, and then no, no Rindy wants to leave. He's going to go. Did... And, he's going to go and go to a league where there's just like no aerial challenges. Well, the other thing was we didn't talk about it against Spezia, but it was his handball that gave away the penalty. It, it was an unfortunate handball, but it's always these things happen to Gigi. So, so in, always... the space, in the space of a week, he's been sent off, or just sent over off. A week, get... He's been sent off, given away a penalty, and then his nose broken. Yeah, and you can make a case. Certainly, what one of those was. Clearly not his fault. The sending off against Milan was Rodriguez's fault. Yeah. And the, the penalty against Spets is not. Yeah, I mean, was was ha- could have happened to anybody. I don't think. Again, well, not... I don't, I'm not, it could have happened to anyone, but it will happen to Coffee. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, the other thing he is out of contract at the end of the season, and I've seen some Torino fans like moaning that, oh, if you can't even get Gigi on a new contract, what hope is there? But I'd also argue he's in. I think he's one of the few players. He's just well, he's just touched thirty. One of the few players in his thirties, but he's been a steady pro for as Juric likes him. Uh, he's got some good qualities. He can't always be relied on to give us a very stable ninety minutes. There's always seems to be something that happens. Like, but yeah, is he a when you got when you give yourself a choice? Is he someone you want to give a two or three year contract to? Um, I know there's a risk. Then you play the next six months of a player who's. Yeah, not going to be part of the future, and you you kind of relying then on their professionalism. But I'm not. It's not to keep Coffee Gigi's contractual situation is not going to keep me up at night anyway. No, I think uh, it, it's maybe an unfortunate one given his age that I could sort of understand Torino's reluctance in 
sign him down to a longer contract. And from his perspective, he's probably also thinking he wants a little bit more extra security. Uh, I think if he's a little, maybe a little bit younger, I think that probably the contracts would have been sorted by now because despite, obviously, I think we've probably been in the early episodes of this podcast, probably his biggest critics, the improvement that he's had in the sort of last 18 months under Juric has, has been has been very good. And I don't... I, I think he's a well-liked member of the squad. I think you can see that when he scored against Milan. And if he goes, if he if he moves on and maybe gets a move um, and goes and, and plays back in Liga, then fair play to him. I think he's 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 the sort of player that you like to sign because actually I don't think he would have cost much money. Probably not big wages, and just like you say, good professional gets on with his job. And I I wouldn't have any concerns about his sort of conduct in the last six months, even if his contract is due to expire, because, I mean, can't break his nose any more times. Oh, no, and he's, and he's suspended, and our, what is going to become our most important match of the season. So, we'll see. I just, the other player I wanted to say a few words, one I thought was man of the match was Samuele Ricci, um, who actually, without Lukic next to him, allowed him to play a little, you know, sometimes we've got this kind of double register role where neither of them ends up playing as a register. He his passing and his work rate are excellent. Um, and I felt kind of played really well with Adopo and then a little bit to a lesser extent, Linetti when he came on. Um, but yeah, another, another kind of very good performance from him. I actually think, yeah, I know Lukic is another one out of contract, but we we look a lot more balanced when we've got, well, Lukic or Ricci playing with, uh, a different profile in midfield and next to him. I think you can get away with them both in in a kind of three man midfield. Um but when we're when we've got two central midfielders it's a bit they're a bit samey. Um as good as they both are. And I think that probably ties us on quite nicely to our, our next point about the, the transfer window and the, the current links and transfers because Ivan Illich uh, has been heavily linked in the last couple of days. Uh, it was thought to Marseille. That, yeah, <laughs> it was thought yeah, that a deal was close with uh, a double deal with uh, Isaac Kien from uh, Hellas. But yeah, as you say, Marseille seemed to have um, come in and and gazumped us. But I'm not massively. Again, I'm probably going to live to regret this once. Obviously, Illich has a great once season. He win, once he wins a Ballon, Ballon yeah, d'Or, yeah. yeah, exactly. Once, once Marseille win the title and he's the player of the season, but. I think from the little I've seen of him, and I would admit that he's not been a player that I've sort of followed too intently. I think he's maybe a little bit too similar to Richie and and Lukic, and and I think we do need a different profile in that in that midfield, especially since we've lost Pabega. I don't think we've got had a sort of like a physical midfield presence, which I think is what we need alongside a, a Richie or or a Lukic. Yeah, although Juric just seems to have. Juric has asked for that kind of physical midfielder, but he also has a certain type of player he likes and he's not scared to have multiple of them in his team as well. So Illich, yeah, I mean, the latest is that Marseille are willing to let him stay at Verona for the rest of the season as well, which is a bit I of find a that, I find it weird, don't you? A bit to of spend, a sweet... To spend like £18 million on a player. Apparently they've, they've increased Torino's offer. Yeah. And then whether that's just part... Uh, a Juventus-esque financial transaction to sort of enable the the money to come out from next season rather than this season. But I just found that a little bit strange to invest so much in a player and then let them 
that you, usually that would be something which you would do a, for a younger player uh, who isn't immediately going to come into the first team. But I suppose if you get to spend 18 million euros on a player, you'd like to think that they're going to. Well, the only other thing the, is if Marseille, if Marseille have a player they know is going to be leaving in the summer that they want him to come in for. Um, yeah, Illich is a bit of a hipster's favourite, isn't he? He's a bit of a kind of. There's a lot of people on, even before these links on Twitter, who've raved about him for a long time. Um, as you said, it would be a big statement signing. It doesn't look like it's happening. And if there's this kind of Torino have done this over the last few years, they've got obsessed about certain players and made it very public and kind of clear that they're after them and it gets very protracted. It's uh, And then we get gazumped and then we're left with a couple of days left to say, oh, uh, we'll either buy the completely the opposite type of player or we won't have a backup. But it just smells of the kind of Lucas Torreira one. The, the difference with the Torreira one, I never thought he would come to Torino. His wages were way too big. Uh, we were never going to be able to afford to sign him from Arsenal after a year's loan anyway. Um, I mean, his career, yeah, I mean, his it that's not worked out so well for the player either. But it... Yeah, this is a bit more realistic because I think Illich has had conversations with with Urich and I think Torino, as we as we sit here now, is still in the conversation. But yeah, I fear we fear he's not going to come. Hien, they probably built the deal about the two players coming, so they've got to renegotiate that. But in any case, that he's possibly coming in as a replacement for Gigi in the summer. It wasn't necessarily a player who was going to come in for now. And then I've also seen that uh, with Olerina back in training. I saw something today that there's no guarantee that we're going to be bringing in a fullback who we needed anyway, even before Lazzaro's injury. And striker-wise, there is, from a few kind of, I'd say, fairly unreliable sources, there are a few names, new names emerging um, that, yeah, you know, suggest it will either be Illich and somebody else, uh, 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 and and maybe a striker. But it was t- I saw something on Timothy Weyer earlier, which again I can't really see happening. Um, and yeah, have you seen? The, I mean, Enzola's gone very quiet. Um, Shromanov, uh, I've seen linked with teams in Germany as well. And I, just, I think Roma are just going to wait to see if they can monetize him rather than let him go out and loan. And I don't think we want to spend cash on him at this point so which is a whole weird thing because we've got we've clearly got 18 million to spend on Illich but then we won't have 500,000 extra to spend on somebody else it's 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 a it's a it's a weird world of Davide Vagnati and Urbana Nakairo yeah no I, th- I think I think it's spot on there I think the positions that we really need players would be I think we need I would I would Ideally, have three. I'd like. I'd like another fullback, preferably a left-footed uh, wing-back, because we only really have as a natural left-footer in who can play in that position is Rodriguez, who doesn't particularly have the legs for it anymore. Um, then a, a centre midfielder, more of a more a physical type, would be my preference, and a striker. And yeah, I'm a bit bit concerned that the Enzola uh, links have just totally disappeared. Whether that's the fact that we're going to try and get him on a pre-contract for next season because he's he's only got six months left on his contract as well, that might be a cheaper way. I, could, I couldn't see Torino spending sort of four or five million pounds on a player who they could get for free the following season. Spezia probably not clearly out of relegation danger yet either, so it makes more sense to them to keep him than than to sell him unless it's a ridiculous offer. So, and they've just 
just sold a player to Arsenal, so probably not in desperate need of the money either. So I think, yeah, it, the, the the crazy thing is that there's only about a week left of the, of the transfer window, which has totally snuck up on me. I think January just always seems to be a, a ridiculously long month and that has probably been exacerbated now with the fact that the, the transfer window still has got a week to go and, and Torino haven't really came close to signing anybody. Yeah, and the other thing is that the window, the rumours or movement tends to go very quiet around the weekends anyway. So if we've not brought someone in by Thursday, then we come out of Empoli and we've got the copper, the distraction of the Copper Italian next Wednesday. So I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I'd be with jokes a week or two weeks ago that nobody would come in and it's it's kind of not impossible. A part of me <laughs> thinks Ky- Cairo would love that Copper Italian match to be on the before the transfer deadline. So if we, we go out, then there's um, there's kind of less motivation to to spend oh, any money. And then if we win, he goes and spends like 30 million on some of the... Yeah, but... Simone Verdi's twin brother. Well, there's a few... There's a couple of points I just wanted to raise before we get into nostalgia territory and look ahead to, to the Empoli match. But um, one is obviously our dear friend Juventus lost 15 points over the um on on friday um to shoot behind us in the table um not by much and i'm pretty sure i'm pretty sure they'll um overtake us in due course but what it has done is it's uh i mean it might be short term but it's breathed a little bit of life into the into the push for europe in the league um i think it may have inspired udinese udinese got a win at sampdoria to take that seventh place at the moment um obviously Torino and Fiorentina were two of the other teams I expect Juventus will I, I expect that that points deduction may change on appeal anyway um between now at the end of the season it could get worse for them it, it could get better for them um but yeah it has it just kind of it's changed the optics a little bit hasn't it do you think it do you think it motivated Torino just a little bit as well in terms of now they've got something to fight for in the league? And it's probably a good thing, actually, because even though, yeah, in all likelihood, Juventus will pick up those points and go above Torino. Every week that we are above Torino in the league, uh, above Juventus, sorry, in the league, is uh, it's it does give you a little a little chuckle when you, when you see the league table. I think the longer and longer that goes on, it's going to give, at least the fans, at least, maybe not the players so much, but... Gives just a little bit of extra motivation. Oh well, Juventus have dropped points here, so any of the points to stay above them, and oh, if we win, yeah, it, and you go got... back above them. And I think that if we do go out of the copper, I think actually having that to sort of look forward to, even if it doesn't mean it doesn't end in European qualification via the league, I think just having maybe but... a battle for eighth place against Juventus is better than a battle for eighth place against Udinese. Well, the other thing is. Even if Juventus finish above us, they may not be allowed in Europe once UEFA bring in their sanctions as well. So it could be that eighth place gets you into Europe. You mean you, you mean Torino could get into Europe because of the failures of another team? Don't be ridiculous, Peter. The, That's never the, happened before. <laughs> it must be time. It happens every four years, doesn't it? <laughs> must be time. Um, yeah, so who knows? But yeah, the derby's not far away. It's a month away, so it's not impossible. We'll be within, you know... we. We could be within three points either way of of Juventus at that point as well. Um, the other thing I want you to raise quickly is where's Simone Zaza? I, he's still not found a club. I'm I mean, not. 
I'm not I, suggesting I, he's going to come back, but I just I find it very. I, I mean, I feel like very I, odd. I think when you, I think when you've gone sort of like four or five months without finding one, you probably it, it it's me. that awkward period where do you just continue looking or do you just announce your retirement quietly? I, I think it's probably just dead. I can imagine. I mean, how old is Azab? Thirty-one, thirty-two. It's probably a difficult. I, d- I don't even where... think he's that old. I don't even think he's that old. But yeah, he's probably. It's probably one of those where, where the salary he was on at Torino and the expectations, or the kind of yeah, how he, he views expect- himself is probably quite different now from what cl- from the kind of club looking to sign him. But yeah, he's expecting a, a maybe a lower Serie A team to come in for him, and and made it maybe those aren't. Uh... Those sort of those bids aren't happening. He, he is thirty-one. Just had a quick check. Yeah. But, I I remember he was linked with pa- Palmer in the summer, and he's been linked possibly with a team in Sweden or Norway. I saw a few weeks. Yeah, ago. I think I think I saw that as well. Uh, I think it was in Sweden, which would be a very strange place for him to turn up on because you wouldn't think you would think again without knowing mass masses about Swedish football that even a Serie B side would would be comparative in terms of wages, if unless he just wants a, a bit of. Uh, change in his football culture. He's a player who's, who's left Italy a few times going to West Ham and Valencia. So I suppose it's maybe maybe he's looking for another adventure abroad. We'll see. I just, but, would, you, would you take him, Peter, if we've not signed any? Bear in mind that he's a free agent and we could sign him outside the transfer window. If we didn't Mate, sign, I, if we didn't sign I, a striker on the like 4th of February, would you would you take Simone back? I would I would take him at Southampton, mate. That's all I'll say. So, um. Given his last, uh, given his last sojourn in the uh, Premier League, I am uh, not too sure about, not too sure about that. But well, seeing as you've brought up Southampton this week, I'll just um, mention that the the Timo Weir links do give me a little bit of uh, anxiety, given the Southampton's past experience of signing a, a relative of of George Weir. Um, but obviously, Ali Deer was not actually related to. Uh, Signed by, former, signed by a former signed by a former Torino coach. No uh, what an, another great link here, Peter. We were on fire today. That was maybe not uh, one of the finest Torino coaches uh, of all time, but Peter's hero definitely is. I'm getting a little uncomfortable in my chair. It might be time to uh, stretch. Have a stretch. Final di ritorno di Copa di Copa UEFA. Rigore, Cravero per terra che fa e si, e si dispera, perciò io dico cavoli a rigore sul serio, questi qua fanno i furbi e allora in mano la sedia e vado a, verso l'albero e dico eh, ti do una sediata e di così ho perso, perso completamente. So what you may have just listened to there was uh, Emiliano Mondonaco talking about uh, probably his most famous moment on the bench of uh, Torino. And he is the Toro hero of the week for my good friend, Peter Bourne. So, Peter, why is Mondonaco your hero? Do you want to give us a little bit of insight? Yeah, I mean, Mondo, definitely the most successful Torino coach since Gigi Radici, where we won the league in in the seventies. Uh, certainly the most successful Torino coach um, of my supporting experience, um, and to be honest, we've not had many um, because Mondonico also felt like a uh, an era as well. A bit like I guess Ventura would be the other coach who had the long, a kind of certain longevity. Um, 
and yeah, my also Mondodico is an element of fortune in that he was the coach of Torino when Torino was spending house money in the early in the early nineties a little bit, or spending money that, um, yeah, as it as it turns out, spending money that we didn't really have, um, but essentially Torino late eighties, early nineties were very ambitious. Um, under Borsano, we did find ourselves in Serie B in the late eighties. And then we were promoted um, just before Italia 90 as the Stadio degli Alpi was constructed. We'd come back into Serie A under Eugenio Fascetti, who was replaced with Mondonico um, for our first season back in Serie A. Uh, Mondonico taken Atalanta to the UEFA Cup semi-final and taken them to sixth and seventh place finishes. It was just this kind of up-and-coming coach at the time. Uh, one of the hottest coaching prospects in Italy. And his whole career has been very linked also with Atalanta. And um, he's from the Cremona region. So Cremonese, Atalanta and Torino were three clubs he played for and coached. Um, and then you just look at the kind of the wider stats of, of his four, his initial four years at Torino. We, we came up from Serie B to finish fifth. Um, the season after we got to the UEFA Cup final, uh, the season after, uh, we finished third and got to the UEFA Cup final. The season after, we won the Coppa Italia. We did um, slip to ninth for the league. I think towards the end of that season, we were kind of focused on putting everything into the, into the cup. And then his final season, eighth, we finished eighth, but got to the Cup Winners' Cup quarterfinals and the Coppa Italia semi-final. So, yeah, I mean, those were kind of... Those are kind of cup runs and league place finishes that at the moment are, yeah, we we can only, well, we, we can only really dream of. Um, and yeah, I guess Mondonico as well. It's yeah, obviously being successful helps. Um, he, but I think there was a lot of love from Torino fans because he incarnated the, the, the spirit of the club and of the team. He created a team that was, um, there was a uh, a Golazzo podcast where uh, I can't remember who the subject manager. Uh, it might have been a Gigi Lentini special, and we should talk about Gigi Lentini at, at some point. Um, but Gabriele Marcotti, I remember describing this Torino team of the early nineties has been like he described them as the last great Italian team. Um, and I just think tactically, yeah, they played in a very um, it it. In a way, which yeah, I guess you had Saki at Milan doing his doing a very different thing with 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 the four four two. But Mon- yeah, Mondonico had this system where, and again, I went when I did the research for this, I always thought of Mondonico as this kind of three five two man with uh, with the the libero and the hard knock central defenders. But actually, the formation was very fluid for those four years, and it was only in, when he came back as Torino coach in the late nineties, which was such a his football was a little bit more rigid three five two, but yeah, classic kind of classic team. We're playing with a libero and 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 two man markers, um, a mix depending on the formation of of kind of wing backs and wingers, and then yeah, the classic midfield where there's a, where there's a register, there was a destroyer, and then he he was very good at allowing. Torino also had always had like two maybe three creative players who were given the license to to be creative, and the rest of the team. Um, was very very disciplined, um, but yeah, I guess I guess we'll talk about a few of the Mondonico highlights. So uh, yeah, just just to kind of show how 
in that first season, they hit the ground running. In the week three, we beat Inter 2-0. Goals from Martin Vasquez, who we signed for Real Madrid, and then Lentini, who would become the world's most expensive player. 1991, Rob, we won our early European competition. I think this is probably another subject for a future date. And there'll be a lot of this in this Mondonico segment because, yeah, like, but we won something called the Mitropa Cup. And like, I've always seen that on the Torino Palmeiras. And I was, it was a nudge before kind of my time. I was like, yeah. T- and and certain, <laughs> certain people, it's a bit mockingly now is like Torino won this European trophy. But from what I can tell, it was a essentially a pre-season European competition. Uh, which was a kind of Habsburg Empire or like Central European thing between Austria, Hungary, Czech Republic, and uh, well, Czechoslovakia. And it only Italy. lasted only lasted one more year after three, though, wasn't it? So we yeah, it, it. but it had lasted about fifty years. But I guess yeah, as as the Champions League came in and UEFA did different things with the European competitions, it it ceased to exist. But we beat Pisa in the Metropa Cup, so we won a European competition, and actually it was a bit of a forerunner for. Um, the cup run of that season because we went uh, deep into UEFA Cup. Um, very fa- two very famous uh, nights at home where we beat Real Madrid two nil um, after leading in the Bernabeu uh, briefly, losing two one uh, in Madrid and then beating Real Madrid two nil. I've seen that game several times. It might have been the three nil match I've, I've watched most because in my teenage years I had a very kind of yeah, beaten VHS cassette of it. Um, but yeah, Torino were brilliant in that night. It was it was packed stadium, really aggressive play, outschooled Real Madrid. Um, Lentidi, always a threat and fantastic. Um, this, uh, just, yeah, kind of is one of the great Torino nights. And it set up a final with Ajax, who had a, a pretty amazing team at, uh, or, or a lot of amazing players coming through. Uh, under under Louis Van Gaal, um, and then we were you know it was a home match first. It was a two legged final, UEFA Cup final. We drew two two at home. We weren't as kind of defensively um, solid as we normally were. So those two away goals proved crucial. And then we go to Amsterdam. If you ever watch the footage back of the Amsterdam game, I mean, the Ajax Stadium looks like Plough Lane from. <laughs> the late eighties, it look it, it's a terrible looking stadium with, um, and we, yeah, we go to, we go to Amsterdam. We hit the, we hit the post of the bar three times. And there's a famous, um, Traversa di Sordo where Gianluca Sordo in the last minute hooks, uh, he doesn't see, he, he's got his back to the goal and hooks his volley onto the crossbar. Um, and then we'd also hit the, I think Musi and Shifo, uh, also hit the hit the post at some point, and then there was a late penalty a- appeal. Torino were denied a penalty, um, and then Mondonico lifts this chair, the sort of chair that you'd find. I don't know in, in a, uh, I don't know, a kind of a kids' Saturday party or something. It was just yeah, not the sort of it, it's not the sort of chair you would see at the side of a football match, but um, but it was a very kind of impulsive action. He lifts his chair above his head um, as a kind of a little bit of defiance, a little bit at that moment, I think, to say the kind of, yeah, the the forces are against us, destinies against us. And this was, it was seen a little bit as a protest against the referee, but I think it was just a protest against, yeah, the the, the inevitability that, that Torino were going to 
not win a match that they that they dominated and 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 created these great chances. Um, and yeah, Torino since have not not come as close to to kind of winning a European trophy. Um, a year later, uh, we get to the Coppa Italia final after defeating Juve in the semi final on away goals, and then we have this. Uh, incredible final with Roma where we we smashed them three nil at home, and then in a in a pretty packed Stadio Olimpico, we managed to lose five two uh, at sixty five minutes. So imagine watching this live twenty five minutes to go with five two down. It's this referee's final game. He gave Roma three penalties, all of which Giannini scored. Torino, I don't know how they hung on. But we did hang on to to, to win a Coppa Italia, which then the following season allowed us to, uh, to to go into the Cup Winners' Cup, where we lost to Arsenal in front of Osama bin Laden, and uh, beat kind of Aberdeen. a bit of, uh, beat Aberdeen. Just we were two oh, nil no, down. Anybody at, beats Aberdeen nowadays. Yeah, well, yeah, very topical. But yeah, we were two nil down at home to to Aberdeen, beat them three two, and then one in one in Aberdeen, and then. Yeah, kind of a bit forgotten Torino match. By winning the cup, we got to the Super Cup. And do you know where we played Milan in the Super Cup? I'm trying to think, what mid nineties? Yeah, it was the summer of nineteen ninety three. Wasn't played in America, was it? For the World Cup? Yeah, it was. It we lost. Cup. Yeah, we lost in Washington DC. To... Couldn't, have had, couldn't yeah. have had that in the quiz, could we, Mesa? <laughs> there we go. Yeah, we lost. Yeah, so the one and only time I think we've been in in the Supercoppa was under Mondonico. So there were kind of a few headlines of achievements under Mondonico. And, and then we had a, you know, really interesting array of young players who came through the Primavera, international stars, uh, you know, uh, prolific goal scorers. And we also had a, a couple of absolute nut job hard <clears throat> men. Like um, there's obviously Pasquale Bruno, I think we'll talk about in the future as well. But then um, for the first couple of seasons, Roberto Policano, the left back, who is an absolute cult hero for a lot of Torino fans. Um, if you haven't seen his tackle on Ajax's Peterson and the UEFA Cup final, um, which ruled ruled him out of the Euros in 92, I think. But yeah, Torino had these players who, yeah, yeah it would create the certain certainly people would be um the opposing forwards would be very scared of but yeah i mean both verbally and physically um so there's a team that had a hard edge to it as well um and yeah i mean i, I think there was a there was i think bruno was called the animal enrico anoni was called tarzan and i think policano was called rambo and um yeah, there were the kind of between them, they they didn't really take any prisoners. But it was, yeah, I mean, we had Brazilian, the kind of enigmatic Brazilian striker, Walter Casagrande. We had Enzo Schifo, Martin Vasquez. We had a young Dino Baggio, a young Christian Vieri, Torino criminally sold. Um, and then also had the world's most expensive goalkeeper for a while, Luca Marcajani. So, yeah. I guess that's a little bit about the team and then Mondonico himself, like I said, he was he really focused on on the collective, on a team spirit, 
in that in that season we finished third when he conceded 20 goals in 34 games this very very solid team um, but then what happened in the final season I remember this it was there was a kind of a gray cloud came over the club very quickly in, in that 93-94 season around the time we played Arsenal where where the club was changing ownership um and yeah that that led to that summer the whole of the squad uh, left apart from apart from Salenzi and Mondonico left um and then yeah fast forward a few seasons after Mondonico's been at Atalanta he comes back to Torino reunited with Lentini um to take us out of Serie B and then we go up into Serie A and have a pretty dreadful uh 1992 campaign where again there was a presidential or ownership change a lot of ownership mess and a really really poorly constructed squad it just didn't have that despite and I felt that that time Mondonico had become a much more kind of I guess cautious coach uh, but didn't have the qualities of before in the team he survived the season the team were relegated um and I don't think there was a lot of ill feeling to him because you know in the years that followed um, when he, he he his coaching career when he left Torino, it, he had a, a few brief spells in Serie A, Fiorentina and Napoli. I'd forgotten he had this. One of his last coaching jobs was at Navarro, where he came in for six games in twenty eleven twelve. Um, but he um his illness he he became uh I think his first cancer diagnosis was two thousand and eleven. When he was coach of Albino Lefe, and it was this, I remember this, this gathering of Torino supporters who met and and held up a chair to support. Him. Well, they met and several of them held up chairs to, in an act to support Mondonico. And then, um, yeah, I guess later years Mondonico became a kind of Sunday night uh, pundit on Italian TV before, sadly passing away. I believe in 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 2018. Um, but yeah, just a great a great, you know, someone who. Played very briefly for Torino in the post. Um, uh, he was well. He's almost one of the first people tried uh, in as a kind of replacement for Moroni after Moroni's sad passing. Uh, but yeah, despite not being a Torino, a, a kind of a Turin-born player, or uh, but someone who's yeah, definitely for the supporters is 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 a kind of real Torino legend for for what he gave the club and also just how how he how he understood the kind of DNA of the of, of the club as well. I realise I've spoken for a long time there. But no uh... more than welcome to Peter. <laughs> this is this is your part of the podcast. Um yeah, just again, just a, a few points for me, obviously a little bit before my era, but obviously being a Torino fan and, and sort of reading about the history of the club, fully aware of Mondonico and the the point I was going to make about was it, this is just something which was totally a coincidence, and I'm sure it like there's no chance that there was any link to it. But almost even now, however many years later, sort of nearly 30, over thirty years um, since that UEFA Cup final, the there was a incident last season with the Real Madrid. I think it was in the victory against possibly Chelsea or maybe Man City in the Champions League where um, David Alaba uh, raised the chair on the sidelines and it was actually Mondonico's 70, what would have been Mondonico's 75th birthday on that day um, and now unless David Alaba is a, a secret 
Torino fan and a uh, historian of the club, it was just a sheer coincidence and maybe just a, a moment of um, just of just what what you felt like it doing at the time to raise the chair. But it that then sort of got a, a bit of press, especially with Torino fans and sort of the comparisons of Mandonico, and that's, and that's even even now sort of there are people still remember that quite quite clear moment in Torino history. There's a um I, I believe they're still showing it. it's probably available on YouTube, but Fabius goes to the um Torino Museum in Gugliasco. As, as soon as you walk into the um the museum, the first thing that they uh, like ask you to do or, or let you do is watch just a, a video which is just basically a montage of sort of Torino highlights throughout the sort of throughout the years. So that in the early years, Grande Torino and and Mondonica Racing Chair is one of the key moments towards the sort of the end of that video. Um, so yeah, just a a key part of Torino's history, especially in the sort of more modern sort of early ninety history, which our last sort of bitter success really. And um, yeah, a, a valid induction into the uh, Toro Hero. I, I'm I'm guessing you have him having having him in as a coach rather than a player. Yeah, yeah. His, his spell is, <laughs> is a his spell. He had a an honest playing career, I think we'd say, but he I think he played fewer than twenty games for Torino. He was, um, I think, an attacking midfielder, uh, but yeah, de- definitely as a coach. I mean, I think <laughs> it's funny how you look back, and I, I was a lot, I was in my teenage years for the at least the first uh, spell with Mondonico. I, I always remember I had certain. I always had a. Even that game against Arsenal as well, there was always a kind of um, a little bit of a limitation, or not necessarily limitation, but always wanting Torino to be a little bit more carefree um, under him. But I sometimes think, yeah, maybe that's, I guess, a, a, a lack of a tactical understanding at the, t- at the time, maybe. But I think when in that final in that final season I would say of the, of the glory years, the team wasn't quite at the, the the quality it had been in in the seasons before um but yeah i just think he if you look at torino's history obviously post post superga it peaked in the 70s and that spell in the early 90s is I, yeah it's when we kind of reminded people that uh, we are we are a big club and and if we can get the investment right um, we can draw very big crowds, and uh, let's not forget the the health that Serie A was in at the time. It was it was a lot easier for us to attract certain types of player as well. It's, um, but yeah, it's it's an era we can all be very nostalgic about. I was fortunate that I caught the, um, I guess caught caught the coattail of it a little bit and was able to, you know, definitely that Coppa Italia win against Roma. Um, yeah. I can still say I've seen Torino win a trophy, but I would like to see it again. And he just, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's, it's you know, it's 30 years this year. Um, it kind of means nothing really, does it? But if you do pull it off, then it kind of sounds quite nice. And you start to believe in, in kind of omens and, uh, and things like that. But yeah, Mondonico, a hero. Um, and actually your villain of the week is another person who's had a pretty, let's say modest spell as a Torino player and it's even more modest spell as a coach so who do you want to talk about yeah I think I managed to get a, a bit of good symmetry on this uh, podcast um 
because yeah, it's a it's another man who has played for and managed uh, Torino. But I would say success again. It's going to be. It, I'll, I'm explain who it is first. It's Franco Lerda, um, who was Torino coach for the 2010-2011 uh, season. Um, I'll get into. Um, a little think, bit more in depth. I, say, about that. I think a, I think a few Torino fans rebranded him Franco Merda. I made a point earlier in the, in the first part of the pod about how statistics can be misleading. Um, and obviously, there are going to be reasons for this. Obviously, Mondonaco uh, coached the majority of his career in Serie A and obviously coached, played, um, was in charge for a lot more games. But Lerdo actually has a better win percentage. Uh, the Mondonaco. Mondonaco is 35% and Lerda is 37.5%. Um, uh, that is my last attempt to uh, suggest that Lerda was a, a competent manager in any if way. Only, if only we'd had Lerda in Amsterdam, we may have won the <laughs> Yeah, well, exactly. Uh, I mean, I think I think the fact that all of these games were played, all of his 40 games that he oversaw were in Serie B, um, shows that his record of 15 wins, 13 draws and uh, 12 defeats isn't particularly uh, impressive. So yeah, Lerda came in um, at the end of the 2000, well, so the summer of 2010, uh, Torino just lost in the player final um, and were expecting a, sort of to, to finally get back into, into Serie A. Um, didn't start particularly well. Um, started... So what was the, what was the appeal in Lerda? he Done. It was. I don't. He looking back. He come from Cortona and got got them to eighth, and then got Torino to eighth. But was yeah. um, Was he seen as an exciting coach? Or this is this is the part where obviously this uh, provided a little bit context is around the first season that I sort of started and sort of like an online presence of being a Torino fan. So I was sort of a Torino fan in the shadows, as it were, beforehand. Obviously, the invention of Twitter and how easy it was to uh, create sort of a, a blog or a website at the time. I started to sort of because it was so difficult to find news about Torino in Italian, uh, in English, sorry. Um, it, was, it was easy to find it in Italian. Um, I sort of started it um, myself and started translating bits and pieces and it wasn't particularly easy to, to watch games either. So I, I couldn't really give a, a detailed analysis of sort of why Lerda was was appointed and, and even I'd watched highlights of games and maybe the odd full game, but really see what he was trying to do with this squad and, um, and these players and I will I will caveat it with like these are probably some of the worst players to have ever played for Torino who played in this season so he didn't have a lot to work with um, but yeah uh, if you look at he, he's now back at Crotone um, ma- the, he's managing in Serie C now but I, I don't I've never really seen anything on his CV which has sort of suggested oh yeah he looks like a Torino manager similarly the man who who replaces him uh, partway through the season and, and then probably get sacked but we'll, we'll move on to that in a, in a second so so we start the season with uh, a home defeat to Varese and then uh, lose away at Cittadella so well, not I'm a great to, start uh, I'll just it's just, just I've got an anecdote in the Cittadella game um, this, I think this is a season I've probably I'd moved to Switzerland but it was a year I moved to Switzerland it's, it's a season I have fewest memories from I think I just watched a lot I must have been frazzled from Serie B years. Um, we had a massive bloated squad of some real horrible players, horrible journeymen. Um, so yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll come on to a few of the players in this season because I, I don't remember. I don't remember some of them who played 30 games that season, mm-hmm. but there was, 
I lost the Varese. I remember I was in Croatia on holiday and I had to go to an internet cafe. Um, and I remember it being arduous getting online to find out the Cittadella score. And all I remember doing was sh- embarrassing my girlfriend at the time, future, uh, well, future wife and now wife. Um, when I saw the score at Cittadella with 2 1, I just, I just shouted at the top of my voice, fucking Cittadella, and walked out this internet cafe. So that the season kind of emptied, ended for me about week two. I just didn't have any enthusiasm for that season. And then, yeah, without ruining the end, but we we finished in eighth place, but we could have got into the playoffs on the final day of the season. It doesn't feel like that for me. It felt like that season was dead for a long time, but yeah, in reality, and, it wasn't. And Yeah, well, I'll sort of lead up and just sort of some of the things that sort of happened to lead to to that that feeling. I think that's probably why he, I've inducted him in and... The reason I've inducted him is to be in sort of the worst coach in my in in my time as a Torino fan, and again, he's a little bit harsh because maybe not able to analyse some of the reasons for why he was the worst coach in the way that I would be able to do with a, a more recent coach. But if you just we our squad wasn't great; it, it was very heavily reliant on Rolando Bianchi, um, who had, had now sort of had two seasons with us in Serie B uh, after after signing whilst we were in the top flight. Um, we were just very inconsistent is, is probably what I would say in, in this season. We would we would win when under Ventura, who, who comes in the following season, we get promoted. We were always in the top sort of two or three throughout the entire season. We'd win the odd game and then I remember we were losing to Gubbio. So it wasn't, it wasn't all great results and things, but we... We would very rarely lose two on the bounce. We'd maybe we'd win four, have a draw, maybe a loss, and then get back to winning ways. Whereas it was very much win one, lose one, win one, lose one, draw one, win one, lose one, and, and that was the inconsistency, which we never really managed to get some sort of a bit of rhythm in the season. Uh, I think over Christmas we really struggled, and Lerder was then finally sacked in March. Uh, in came uh, Giuseppe Papadopolo, uh, talking about people who. Have literally been picked out of a hat to become manager. I believe the only thing Papadopoulo ever did in his career was got got Siena to Syria, and I think that was well, what he made his name off. He'd been at Lazio, hadn't he? But he'd he'd had a long coaching career. But he he came in for two games, we lost them both. And then he's not been seen in football. He's not had a job in football since. Uh, but that was so effectively we retired Papadopoulo. But do you know who else retired in that season? Do you remember this? Uh, is this uh, Marco Bonacci? Yes, yeah, so we signed this beanpole striker, Marco Bonacci, from Ascoli. He was eight, he was 27 years of age. I remember not being that inspired by him as a signing, but he scored quite a lot of goals in Serie B. And then we'd lost to Varese on the opening day, and then he retired from professional football. And it's there may have been... It was never really explained. I think it, it may have been a mental health thing, and he needed that to was, get away. That was, and, yeah, that was yeah. that was my understanding of it as well. It yeah, so he needed he needed to get away, and and he came back. He retired for a year, and then came back. Um, I can't remember where a year later, but yeah, it was just that's not to make light of that at all. But it's more, it was a season where. Yeah, lots of lots of kind of quite strange decisions. And it, lots and if you of think, lots of it, weird random players came in. We had a, this massive bloated squad. Uh, I just it, there's a there's a player I want to ask you about. So I've looked at the squad. There's lots of players who made three or four appearances, and some I remember, some I don't. But Dejan Lazarevic made 32 appearances. 
and a very, 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 we've had a few of the kind of, um, was he Serb? I guess he was Serbian. We, we've, we've had a lot of players from that part of the world, but I had to Google him and look at a picture of him. I still looked at the picture of him and like, vaguely remember this player, but 32, as a player, ever played so many games and not left an impression. It, Do you, you may remember him better than me, but I, re, I couldn't tell you much, but was he a kind of wing back, a wing he, back or? He was a winger. Um, right. He was very much like a, um, remember Alan Stavanovic? May have also played in this season, actually. Um, yeah. Very similar. Yes, the Venture only played 10 games, played a little bit more in the um, Ventura. But yeah, maybe similar, but maybe like a pacey winger. But I don't remember him being particularly good. Um, so the fact that he managed, he played sort of 30 odd times sort of sums up this season a little bit. Um, oh, yeah. The other one was, um, I had it um we had a goalkeeper, Rubinho, which is a great name for goalkeeper because Rubinho went on to play for for Rubentus. That's <laughs> uh, another joke for. Him. But oh, who was the goalkeeper? We had a Davide Bassi. Davide Bassi, I couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't. It, I, I I could walk past Davide Bassi in the street with him wearing a Torino goalkeeper's top with one Bassi on the back, and I still wouldn't recognise him. But um, yeah, and and Kelly Corey, the striker. Yeah, he had some issues, didn't he, when um, a lot of players got banned from football in um, kind of and the mid-2010. But the yeah. Point, the point I was going to just briefly make as well is that if you think that the last, the season before this, we had the ultras sort of storm and uh, storm Davide and Michele's birthday party and tell them that they had to leave. Um, this was actually probably a worse season than that one because obviously we made the playoffs this season. We didn't even manage to do that. We had the players like Lazarevich, uh, Alessandro Budel, I think uh, yeah, was okay yeah, at yeah, pressure. Biagio uh, Pagano was one of my favourites. Uh, Pagano. Uh, Matt, the Matt uh, corner, uh, corners hitting the first. Uh, another, corners another not making the first man. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure he'd make the team. Um, Claudio Rivalta, I think he was uh, um, Colantuano's um survivor um uh, but yeah just a really really poor team like if you look at if you look in terms of goals bianchi scored 19 in 33 uh nobody else got double figures uh alessandro screenia who played quite a, a key role in the promotion season the following year got six uh antima Junker. Junker actually thought he was quite a good player um but yeah we on on, on paper when you bring in Bernacci Junko, you got bianchi um Screen yeah, there's a lot of Serie. There's a lot of kind of and you we, know if you want to get if you want to get out of Serie B, buy Serie B. But which we, and we did, bought Anton- but... we bought Antonucci in the January and he scored six in nineteen. Um, but yeah, just just to uh, just sort of quickly just mention how the sort of season turned off. So basically, we bring in Papadopoulos in March. He loses both of his games in true Italian fa- fashion. We bring Lerda back. We then actually win four in a row. Uh, the first game was a four 0 win at at Ascoli. Uh, win four in a row, it sort of looks like we're finally getting on track. And then, do you know what happened? I went to a game. <laughs> oh, did you? So I went to watch the uh, one-all draw against Regina. Um, probably one of the worst games I've ever been to. Um, Luis Cavanda, um, uh, the right back who we had on loan from Lazio, probably one of the worst performances I've ever seen from a professional footballer. Um, I'm not even sure if he started, to be honest. But yeah, just dreadful. Um, and no, he came on, came on, came on after 82 minutes. 
and uh, still, still, still in my mind is why the worst performance is as a professional footballer, which probably says a lot. Um, so yeah, then we just sort of struggle. We almost sort of stumble over the line. Five draws in the last seven, um, and then yeah, we go into the last game of the season at home to Padova, knowing that a win guarantees us from the playoffs, and we can't manage to do that. So um, I can just remember there being an interview on, on Toro News at the time, um, just Bianchi being interviewed and you could just sort of see that he'd been crying his eyes out in the, in the dressing room. And it was it was just one of those, and I think it probably reflected a lot of, a lot of the feelings that players had at home, uh, or uh, fans had at home. I wish the players were at home and they wouldn't be on the pitch. Um, but yeah, just... Um, a, a really poor season to be a Torino fan. Like Serie B seasons were always difficult. I think the the, the quality is always going to drop off in terms of players, but there was just that's that's part of the reason. It's even more difficult to to follow it as a fan from abroad when you're in the in the second division and you're sort of watching games or or getting the results back from games with little context. I mean, even this season, if losing sort of one at home to Spezia you'd be a little bit disappointed, but when you sort of, in the context of the season, you can sort of see why that has happened. But yeah, just a, a poor season. And Lerd is, is going to take the, the fall for that as I think one of the worst coaches to, to be. I mean, stats-wise, we've actually, obviously Papadopoulos with his, with his 0% win percentage, not the only uh, Torino coach with a, a win percentage of zero, but um, I think a little bit harsh to, to judge somebody on only two games. So Lerd for his, Relative longevity gets it, and and just really for that season, probably I'd say it's the worst season that I've had as a as a Torino fan, and I've I've had a, a few less than than Peter, but yeah, that is uh, that is why Frank Alerda is my Toro villain. Bad season, but do, do you know the link between the Alerda team and our opponents this weekend, Empoli? Is that one of the rare teams we beat in that season? No, the coach Paolo Zanetti played oh, 15 course. games that, that, se- that season. I think he must have come back to Torino for that season. But yeah, so Empoli, Empoli this weekend. So back to Tuscany. We're back. Uh, I think our intention is to do a review of Empoli and a bit of a preview of the next trip to Tuscany, the Fiorentina Cup quarterfinal. So we'll just touch quickly on Empoli. Empoli are in great form. On beating in six, they beat Inter on Monday evening or be Inter had 10 men for, for a long period. Uh, what if, I think only four teams in Italy unbeaten in the last five matches. Uh, I, I like these sort of stats. I just think that mm. you're due a defeat, Empoli, um, which, yeah, make makes no logic. But I think they got a few players banned as well. There were a few, they got quite a few yellow cards in Milan. Um, we won there. We won't mention who scored a hat trick, but we won there 3 1 last season after going there with a terror. Our record in Empoli has played 16. One one, drawn eight, lost seven. So I would say we're still due another win in Empoli. And and they did have to have nine men for us to be able to beat them. That's true. I I haven't predicted us to win for a while. I don't, oh, I think I'd predicted us to beat Spezia, but I'm gonna go for a win in Empoli. It's at that it's the terrible slot of Saturday. It's a terrible slot for watching matches in the UK anyway, so we'll have to try and find a way to watch it. But I'm I think Empoli are I wasn't that impressive when they came to Turin. It was a match you were at. Uh, they were very lucky to get a point against us, but they, I think they've got some interesting young players there. Uh, seems to be quite well coached. Uh, Paolo Zanetti, it's got a bit of a jinx. Does he's? 
un- managed to be unbeaten with Venezia against us last season and got that lucky point early in the season. So I think we're going to go to Empoli. I think we're going to win 2-0. Um, and then we'll talk about Fiorentina when when it's time. But yeah, how are you feeling about Empoli? Are you feeling... Yeah, my, similarly, my confidence a bit misplaced. No, similarly uh, encouraged, if only for the fact, obviously, Empoli in good form. And like you say, sometimes that can that can be a good thing for the team of going to play them because you like to think form can't last forever. Um, and also the fact that uh, I'm actually a we- on a we- at a wedding on Saturday, so I'm going to miss the game. And as we always know, if, if Rob can't watch the Torino game, I mean, if, ideally he's not in the stadium. And then if he can't watch one on TV also, or, or even follow it online... Um, then we're going to win. It's happened got, a number of times this season, especially. I've got, I've got the impression that Radonjic always scores when you don't watch as well. So, well, I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure we'll get a place in the team at the moment. But yeah, obviously, I was uh, away on holiday at the start of the season where we we started with sort of two back to back wins, and yeah, I'm I'm optimistic of maybe a, a one nil, and yeah, it, I, I believe the wedding kicks off. I'm not sure if that's the correct terminology. Um, but yeah, wedding kicks off at, at two o'clock exactly the same time as Torino uh, and Police. So I, um, yeah, I might I might ac- accidentally give a give a cheer out at a, a time that I'm not supposed to if we uh, take an early lead. Well, let's hope so. So yeah, it's very very um, very Tuscan themed um, matches for Torino at the moment. So, but yeah, I've enjoyed I've enjoyed this one. Um, it's good to follow a win. It was good to talk about Mondonico. It's good to reminisce about the Lerda year. And uh, Forza Toro. Forza Toro. <laughs>